Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I hope your spring has been full of love and light and energy. That's exactly what I'm soaking up. I'm continuing to seek it and helping to create it, I hope. Uh, Today's guest is definitely a bringer of love and light and energy. Her name is Lisa Hallett, and she's the co-founder of Wear Blue, Run to Remember, a national nonprofit running community that honors the service and sacrifice of the American military. Uh, I believe that the most powerful movements are started organically by someone or sometimes a group of people who are in need of something missing in their lives. This organization is no exception. Where Blue was started because early in Lisa's marriage, her husband John was killed while deployed in Afghanistan. And it's a really difficult story but it's life and you need to move forward when tough things happen. So as Lisa navigated her new reality, she needed to find a way to remember John that was meaningful and that like fit into her life as it is today. Her story while definitely uh, emotional and hard to listen to, I mean, you'll see or hear that it was hard for me to listen to it as well is also, I think, comforting and probably really helpful to many others who've suffered loss. And we all suffer loss in our lives, so it's a good one. Let me just say that. Um, But before we dive in, it is also Mother's Day weekend coming up, and I want to offer a nod to mothers everywhere. So Mother's Day is on Sunday, um, and I am lucky to be both a mom and to still have a mother who's living, who I love and appreciate very much. Love you, Gail Molzon. Um, A year ago, I recorded a Mother's Day podcast. I just wrote it and recorded it, and I called it Right Where We Need to Be. If you want to hear it, it's episode 92, and I stand by my overall sentiment that motherhood is both a struggle and a celebration with our own children and as adult children, I often think about like how I hope that when Wilder's 40, she actually wants to hang out with me. (laughs) So this weekend, I encourage you to think a little deeper about that relationship you have with your mom and how you wish your children will view you so that when they are your age now, they will love and appreciate you even more. You know, be that person. Be that person. Um, And, oh, cool stuff. If you have seriously procrastinated on getting your mom a little something or yourself, because, you know, on Mother's Day, you can get yourself something, uh, get the gift 
of body love. <laughs> Not that kind of body love. Um, go to skirt sports. Get yourself or get your mom or get a mom you know something that is going to make her feel great. We have a Mother's Day sale going on through Monday, May 13th. So it goes the day after Mother's Day with lots of awesome styles and uh, lots of sizes still available. That can be a bummer for people when they're like, oh, they don't have my size. But a lot of things we still have from extra small to XXL, 1X to 3X. Um, Plus, sometimes dads and kids need a little help because... I've often heard this said, I have no idea what you want or what you need. I just, I don't know. You, you're not really giving me any, anything to go on, even if you think you drop a lot of hints. So, um, many of you may relate to hearing the same thing. So, uh, I say, make it easy, send them the link or just say, Hey, I'm going to buy myself something from you. Because even though it's Mother's Day and the kid's supposed to get you stuff until they're old enough to actually have money or like, you know, they make you things or whatever, which is really cool. But, you know, the the dads often do it instead. So anyway, back to the interview. Wait, let me just stop there. Go over to skirtsports.com and make that happen for yourself. Now, back to the interview with Lisa Hallett. Um, I need to let you know that we were besieged by those annoying little bings that were like somehow getting through the airwaves. We actually stopped and restarted a couple times to try to solve the problem. We literally thought we had nailed it. Like we had stopped all notifications and nothing was going to bing again. And basically we could now start a tech company. We were so awesome. Um, only to hear more bings as we went on. So we clearly didn't solve it. Um, we decided to just ignore them and we kept going. So you'll hear a couple spots where we stopped and then we, we stopped so long that we couldn't figure out where we left off. So whatever, you know what? All this means is that we're human and Lisa is super popular and gets a lot of notifications and, I need to figure out how to eliminate the notifications once and for all so my guests can be comfortable. All right, with that little disclaimer, let's bring the wonderful and inspiring Lisa Hallett on the show. So Lisa, this is so cool. I'm so glad you took some time to chat with me today. I know, I super appreciate this. Um, and you're just like so busy. It was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to squeeze in an hour here in my early oh my morning start time. Sorry. Oh, it's, why are you it's so- fast. I'm fresher on my second cup of coffee before lunchtime. So this is perfect timing. Well, I'm pretty wired today because I did two cups immediately upon waking. Boom. Good. You have a four-year-old? Actually, you might think she's four if you read my bio because it hasn't been updated in three years. That always, <laughs> she's seven. <laughs> It's fine. Oh my gosh. Wait, how old are your kids? Nine, 11, and 13. Oh my gosh. Okay, so the nine is your girl. Yes. Yes. And your uh, two oldest are boys. What are their names? Uh, Heidi, Bryce, and Jackson. Oh, so this is perfect because I can come to you. Um, having like been, I guess, tested by boys, but then followed up by a girl, you'll be able to give me really good parenting advice two years ahead of where I am, which is perfecto. Yes. I can tell you everything not to do and you should be, um, on the path to success. You know, isn't that funny how 
we're relatively like confident, strong women, but parenting just throws all of that in the trash because we just feel like we have no idea what we're doing to your comment of, I can tell you all the things not to do. Like, why does parenting do that to us? Uh, It's a mess. It's a beautiful mess, right? I love it. I love it. But if I, if I am not your Pinterest mom and I'm not your Instagram mom, I am your, it's a sloppy hot mess on the way. And I, I wouldn't have it any other way because it's real. It is real. And that I, that's all I can do, but kind of celebrate in the realness of our messiness. Well, it's true. And, you know, we're going to talk today all about your incredible story, you know, difficult, challenging, horribly emotional, all those things. But I'm kind of starting at the present moment, which is just how it's going. And, um, it's as I think about this whole parenting beast, which by the way, I feel the same. Like I only have one kid and she's seven and I feel like the beautiful mess is a great way to describe it, but I'm doing it with a, with a partner. And just this morning we were like, Tim and I had to tag team to get her ready to go to school. And I looked at her and I go, Wilder, what would happen if I had seven other kids? I go, you'd be taking care of them because I wouldn't be able to do it all. And we just need two people just to take care of you. And she looked at me and she goes, no, I'd just be one of the kids. I thought that's really what it is. Like they just look at us for, you know, everything. Yet at the same time, they rebel against everything we ask or tell them to do. It is. I, you know, I'm lucky that my children, well, my oldest has a lot of his dad in him, which is good because he keeps us, okay, mom, we really need to leave in 12 minutes. Guys, do you have your, your lunches made? And I'm, you know, I'm trying to squeeze in four conference calls while we're getting out the door. Um, but my youngest is just like me, which is, it's a recipe for trouble, a recipe for trouble. So that's really interesting. You know, you can see yourselves in your kids as they get older, maybe even more. Um, What's the oldest name again? Jackson. 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 So you mentioned he had a lot of his dad in him. Maybe we should talk a little bit about John here. Like, what does that mean that he had a lot of his dad in him? Uh, John, oh gosh, John was, John was everything good. And so he is just this super put together, I want to say soldier, but he was husband and just human being. And so I didn't marry a soldier. I married John Hallett. And so John was punctual. He was hardworking. He was obsessed with making lists. And, um, but John always did the right thing and he always chose the hard right over the easy wrong. And so there's this real sense of right and wrong in my son, Jackson. And, um, I mean, John and I, John was, yeah, I, I explode. I was like, I'm so mad. Or I, I just feel so big, whatever I feel. But John was very even keeled. He's like, let's talk about this. Let's solve it. And, um, Jackson is very much the same way. I want to talk to you about how I'm feeling. But the one time John and I, would argue would be when we were trying to get out the door and John's like, um, it's time for us to leave. And I was like, that's great. I'm going to put on my makeup, maybe have, you know, something to eat. And, you know, I've got a very different timeline than John. And so Jackson is, is the same way. I remember at the beginning of the school year, Jackson says to me, you know, he's like, mom, I need to talk to you. So this is you know, very serious. He says, mom, do you think you can try really hard 
to be on time this year. It's like, Oh gosh, just like your dad. So, um, just I love this. that. I love that. So do you think like having lost his dad when he was very young, it, it is he more mature because of it? I mean, he is 13 through and through. So he's definitely a teenager. Not but mature. There, <laughs> there, but there is something, something real about a child who has lost a parent at a young age. And you cannot deny that it shapes uh, who they are and how they live. And um, there is definitely a sense about Jackson, whether he can see it or not, that he has a sense of responsibility um, that I think is uncommon for a 13 year old boy. And that he feels some sense of ownership over the path our family's taking. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, uh... You're right. That does feel like a lot of responsibility or could become at some point feeling like a burden, but that's going to be your job to manage. And that's really, that's where those challenges and that beautiful mess of parenting come in. Whoa. I think, I think it's what every, I think especially what every woman is trying to find that, uh, unattainable balance of, how do I set my children up for success so that they can achieve everything that they are meant to achieve while still maintaining this identity of who I am and continuing to grow independently as a professional, as an athlete, as a human being. And it's, it is this constant struggle. And I think in right, we're refining ourselves, we're refining our families in the way, but I think it is our charge, you know, as women in 2019 to figure out, how do we do it all and keep our sanity and do it all in, in, a, in a way that do it all that's important to us, right? I don't want to sacrifice who I am so that I can be a mother because I think I'm a better mother when I'm achieving who I can be. Um, I don't want who I am to compromise who my children can be. Oh, <laughs> I really love this. This is a great topic. You're right. But you know, even, even before we get, we move more into the path of like, who are you today? I kind of want to hit on, I'm really, as we've been talking about this, I'm really interested in relationships and how people find each other and how they're attracted to other people. And hopefully those people help balance them out and not push them off the edge one way or the other. Um, And so since, you know, a lot of who you are today and what you do, part of one of the big projects you have is based around your relationship with your husband, John. Um, and so maybe we can dig a little bit into how and when you first found this person in your life. And I will preface this by saying that I was listening to, um, the extra mile podcast interview with you where you guys went out for a run and, and, uh, it's an awesome podcast. Anyone who's listening now, I mean, check out that podcast as well. Um, especially the episode with Lisa, because, um, it's really powerful and it's it's a interesting format for a podcast because he literally goes out for a run with you which can be feeling like kind of distracting because you're like breathing hard but at the same time that's when we free ourselves up right to open our minds and like speak freely is when we're out moving our bodies so i learned a little more about your background with your husband through that episode and other things i've read Um, but I want to hear it again in your words. How did you meet this person? Why were you drawn to him? Why was he drawn to you? You know, and how you guys came together in those early years? 
Well, that latter question will be remains a mystery. We went to John Hallett, seeing Lisa Garner, but um, <laughs> John, John and I grew up together. We went to a small Catholic school in Concord, California, and he was a couple years older than me. But it was a small community, so you know we were all at the spaghetti dinners or the fish dinners or the wheelathon on the weekends. And so he came from a family of three of three children, and I had a family of three children. So our lives were very woven together in terms of you know hanging out or school or going to the basketball games and the spirit rallies, all those things. But when we were in high school. Our, our friend groups ran um, ran in the same same crowd. So his best friend, his little sister, was my best friend. So we were doing all, all the cool, cool things together. So John and I ran in the same friend circle. And when we were in high school, we went with our youth group to Tijuana, Mexico. And we spent a week building homes for those in need. And you're broken into these small groups. And so on the first day, John and I work together and we build seven frames for a house. I mean, we, we cannot be any more amazing, obviously. Um, I actually think later somebody had to redo all of the work that we did, but I finished that day with John and I said, well, really to anybody who would listen, but I said, I am going to marry John Hallett and have his red headed babies. I and- love that. So you just like, you knew each other, through all your young years, but you didn't really connect until that trip. Right, right. And I'm a friend. We're old enough now to where, you know, when you're little, the difference between a fifth grader and a seventh grader is a big deal. Yeah. But when you're in high school, you, you, the playing field starts leveling out. And so I just, I fell for him and I fell hard. Um, so then naturally I dated all of his friends and then um, he went to West Point and I went to UC Santa Barbara and he came to his cousin's wedding in Santa Barbara and he said, hey, do you want to go with me in the rehearsal dinner? And I was like, John Hallett is asking me to, the, to go with him? I said, yes, yes. And, and I did. And it was so great. And then the following week, everybody was going to Lake Tahoe. And he's like, hey, do you want to go with me? And I was like, uh, you know, I don't know. It depends if I have gas money or not. And then John left. And later in the fridge, there were two $20 bills in my fridge. And they said gas money. Oh, my gosh. And I, I still have that $20 bill. Well, one, one of them was obviously used. Um, but one is upstairs in my room. And um, and I went. And then the rest is history. Okay, so wait. Did he later say anything like, I, you know, I really had a crush on you and in Tijuana I knew? Or like, was there more on his side? So oh, that it didn't just come out of nowhere like, hey, you want to go to rehearsal dinner with me? <laughs> you don't know. No, wait what? a minute. Charlotte, where is this effusive <laughs> proclamation of his love for me? Um, you no, know, he put up with me, so that's good enough. Um, no, but he did invite me. So West Point, which is full of these rich, beautiful traditions, and 100 nights before you, you graduate, there's there's an evening, a, a dance, and it's called 100th Night, and it's on Valentine's Day. Well, it was on that year on Valentine's Day. So I went with John to 100th Night, and then I went to his graduation, and then um, we just launched, really, it just never stopped from that point on. And So what? Um, how old were you when you officially started dating? What year was that? I was, oh gosh, 2000. 
2000, okay. when Christmas 2000, because he graduated then in June of 2001, which wow. is you know, obviously a very unique time for our country because John graduated in peacetime uh, in a world that was about to violently and dramatically change. Absolutely. I mean, so I know going to West Point is a big deal. Um, did he always know he wanted a career in the military? Um, I think John was drawn to the challenge. Um, he, he majored in electrical mechanical engineering, mechanical engineering. And so he wanted that intellectual challenge, but I think he wanted more than that. He wanted, there is a very powerful way that you connect with one another in a life of service. Um, but I think there was very, uh, an overwhelming love of country and this commitment to service. And I think that's what drew John to the military. His uncle Charlie, um, had graduated from West Point and served. And so he had that role model in his uncle, but also just this internal desire. How could he be his best, challenge himself the most and, and live in a way that served others? And I think the military answered that call. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's so much structure too. And it just, you know, we all need a purpose in our lives. Absolutely. And he had a purpose from the minute he graduated college. Not everybody does. And so you were in uh, Santa Barbara? Yes. Okay. So we had very different college experiences. Very okay. Different. So what was yours like? I went to school on the beach. He <laughs> went to the school where you're not allowed to sit on the same horizontal surface as an individual of the opposite sex. So he had to put his books, I think, in alphabetical and height order. And I didn't have books. <laughs> questionably had books. I took a detective fiction class. I took a science fiction class. Very different experiences. Um, I have to tell you, in college, I took a class called Communication Between Humans and Other Animals. What? <laughs> I hear you. Amazing. amazing. You we would have been very good college friends, I can tell. Um, so what we're communicating already. So, um, so with like, here you are, are you still in college when he graduated, by the way? Yes. I okay. was a sophomore in college the year he graduated. I had two more years of school. And so we just, we did long distance for a while. So that first year after you graduate, you have a series of different schools that he had to go to as an infantry officer. So he goes to um, he goes to airborne school at Fort Benning, Georgia. He goes to officer's basic course. He, he goes to ranger school. And actually, as he um, is going to these different military schools, I am um, we're, we're figuring out what long distance looks like and, and we're making it work. But actually, when he goes to ranger school, that's when I signed up to run my first marathon. I said, well, if John's going to do something hard, I'll, I'll clearly I'll do something really hard, too. And let there be no comparison. Going to ranger school was a million times more difficult than my very casual run that I did through Los Angeles. But um, it's what got hooked me, got me hooked on running. Um, but it was a neat way that I was able to parallel his experiences with my own with my own challenges. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that ranger training can be intense, like beyond. Um, you know, with all the deprivation. So I, I really love this idea of you saying, 
I want to experience something. You know it's not going to be the same. But let me, let's talk about your running for a minute. Um, did you run like as a kid? Were you an athlete? I, yes, yes, I was an athlete. And not, I was not a collegiate athlete. I've always enjoyed running. I did CYO track and cross country in elementary school. I played soccer in high school. I was a cheerleader. And so I've always enjoyed running as a release. And, um, you know, when you're in college and you're trying to transition from that high school identity without a collegiate sport, running is such an accessible way to do that. Yes. And, um, and so it was a natural fit to take to the next level. And so I, I really want to be clear. My first marathon was very, very slow, but I did it with team and training. And so I learned how to do it right. I did it in a supportive community and and it gave me a new dialogue and community outside of the traditional, um, collegiate experience. And I was hooked. I mean, that's really cool because I did sports through college, but you know, they were structured. So you already in college were learning how to include sort of sports in your life for more of a long-term approach, which is cool. I love it. And and that's one of the, and we'll talk about it later, but that's one of the pieces that I love about Wear Blue and that we have um, run communities across the country. And we have a lot of um, young service members who are high school athletes, and then they enter a life of service. And I love highlighting how they don't have to abandon that identity and that running is such a wonderful way to continue to weave in that um, piece of who they are and how they live as they move forward throughout a military career. We just um, are coming back in here and we just spent six minutes figuring out how to turn off our alerts and (laughs) not make little dinging noises while we're doing Skype interviews. Isn't this cool? It's so empowering. We are strong women. We can do anything. Pretty much. Pretty much. But neither of us have any idea where we were in the interview. No. But we were talking about, here's where I want to pick up. So, okay. So John graduated. You guys are dating. Are you like falling in love at this time? And like, you know, this is the guy I'm going to get married to him. And you're still going through college. So you have to figure out and finish your college experience at the same time. Yes, but it, it's not terrible. It's not terrible because I mean, you learn this very quickly in military life that you learn how to have a diverse relationship that is not dependent on seeing one another day to day. So you write letters, you do phone calls. And I feel like we were our relationship was richer because we knew how to connect on so many different levels and, and to have a conversation. And let's be honest, John's first duty station was Hawaii. So I made the sacrifice and left the beaches of Santa Barbara to visit John on the beaches of Hawaii. What island? Uh, Oahu. Oahu. And so he was stationed at Schofield Barracks. And I actually did a couple semesters of undergraduate in Hawaii. So I lived with John for about six months. And um, I went to Leeward Community College. And I took some undergrad classes there. And then I went to the University of Hawaii as an exchange student, if you will, for a semester. And then I went back to Santa Barbara so that I can graduate with my peers. Wow. Okay. So you weren't married yet, but you knew you were doing this. And at the same time, when you're visiting him, are you getting the sense and feel for what it might be like to become a military wife or a military family? Yes. Yes. And I 
looked good every time we went out, just in case he asked me to marry him. And so I made sure. <laughs> always, you know, I always, I've got my hair done. I've got my, you know, cute outfit that you wear in the early 2000s, whatever that is. And, um, but it was, I was able to meet, you, you make friends fast in the military because you have to. And you make real friends because we have a very unique life experience. And this is the beginning of the global war on terror. So in general, for our military families, it's still a very unsure time. We have no idea that we're entering our nation's longest war at this point. And um, but we've got Iraq happening and Afghanistan happening. And so it is it is an overtime, overwhelming time to be military. But you do make amazing friends. And um, and we were sold. We so loved our military family. Were you over in Hawaii then? Because he graduated in 01 mm-hmm. when 9-11 happened. Was he already over there? No, John wasn't. John was at school at Fort Benning, and I was actually working in San Francisco at the time. Wow. And and I just didn't know. I was so naive at that time. And so 9-11 happens, September 11th happens, the attacks happen. And I remember talking to John on the phone. I said, what does this mean? Are, are you going to war right now? And he's in the middle of a school. He's like, no, I, I have to finish this school, and, and, and it, I'm not instantly going. That wasn't John's job at that point. And so he finished his schooling, got assigned to a unit in Hawaii. And then at that point, that unit was gearing up for a deployment. And um, eventually in 2004, John deployed to Iraq for the first time. So, okay, so let's backtrack. You got married before that, though. So we're kind of bringing this all in together. Um, When was that? And how did that go down? Well, first of all, I looked terrible when John asked me to marry him. What happened? Tell us. (laughs) He's so sneaky. I had looked so good all these other times. And so I fly out to visit John on Valentine's Day from Santa Barbara. And he gets called in to staff duty. And I was so mad. So he is about to do a 24-hour shift at work. I've flown across the ocean to be with him. And he has to go to work and um, and stay at the office overnight for a 24-hour shift. And so because I had lived there for about six months before um, taking some classes with John, I had some friends. And so a friend called me up and said, hey, do you want to go hiking with me? And I'm like, fine. If John has to work, I'll go hiking with you. And so my friend Jen and I hiked to the top of Diamond Head. And I am pretty much grumbling the entire time. And it's raining. And I've got my hair pulled back in a ponytail and a a beautiful scowl on my face. And um, we get to the top of Diamond Head. And John is waiting for me with a bottle of champagne and a circle of tourists around him. And he says, will you marry me? (gasps) And I said, yes. Oh, my gosh. In a circle of tourists? Did he bring them? Or were they just like, oh, something cool is going to go down right now. We got to be part of this. Uh, I don't think he arranged the tourists. Just a happy byproduct of a white life. Oh, that is so awesome. I mean, what it goes to show is that you just can't plan the big events of your life. And, uh, you know, it's a lesson I'm still struggling to learn that I just have to stop and that the good stuff's going to happen when I'm not looking. Well, he planned it. You didn't plan it. Well, <laughs> exactly. Wow. Okay. So, so he engaged you. Uh, you got engaged on the top of beautiful mountain. Um, and and then I and then I fly back and 
I have six more months of undergrad, and so we pass around my engagement ring while we're studying for finals. And then I, you know, we we have a wedding plan for over a year, and then John gets stop lost. So we find out John's about to deploy. They're not allowed to to leave Hawaii because they're they're about to head to the Middle East. And so we move our wedding up. And the reality is John's about to go to a combat experience. And it's just, it makes more sense for us to get married before he leaves. So we rush and put our wedding together. And we get married December 27th, 2003 um, in California in the childhood church where John and I had both gone. And um, and then three weeks later, John leaves for Iraq. So is... Is the idea, first of all, we got married December 28th, but it was many years prior. So there you go. The reason that most pro triathlete couples get married at that time is because it's the perfect off season, right? So that's like a little precursor to the fact that you were going to become a triathlete. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But you said it made more sense for us to get married before he left. I mean, is that because there's this you know, this thought and idea that anytime someone leaves, they may not come back. And so the important things need to happen first. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because the first time I think, and this is how it was for me, um, the first time you send a loved one to war, especially early in the war before we have that kind of deployment fatigue that that we know all too well right now. Um, But it's very romantic in the classical sense. Um, I'm sending my husband to war, you know, hand dramatically on your forehead. And, um, but you can't really imagine the danger, right? So the reality is, yes, you know, a loved one may not return for war, but that is always someone else's risk, not your own, because it is too gut wrenching to think that that reality could be your family's. Um, but in terms of logistics and, and communication, access to medical care, I needed to know what was happening with John Downrange. And if I wasn't a family member, that information wasn't mine to be had. And ah. so it was important in terms just of logistics for us to be married before he left. And um, so you weren't you didn't get pregnant before he left. No, nothing, okay. nothing dramatic, nothing dramatic like that. <laughs> Only other dramatic things. Um, okay, so you were pretty young when all this happened. I mean, you got married right out of college then. I know. If my children get married when they are 22, I, I, I was such a baby. I was such a baby. I but know. I think there's... I do. When I, I, get married, when I get married again, it will be different. Um, but John and I very much, He was. I was 22, he was 24, and we created each other. You know, we really, you grow a lot in your 20s. And I think um, I was lucky enough, I think, I hope, to grow with somebody who helped me realize my best version of myself. And so I think that was just such a wonderful opportunity for me. And I, I hope that I helped to shape John in, in positive ways as well. Um, but it was different now, you know, in my late 30s, I'm formed. I mean, obviously, we're const- all constantly evolving and growing. But in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm formed in ways that I wasn't when I was 22 years old. Absolutely. I think you're right. Those early relationships, either, you know, in while we're still in school, or if we do get married early, which I did too, I mean, you tend to look back on those times and think, wow, I was a really different person. And I understand now why a lot of people maybe get divorced because there's a lot of learning to be done 
and values can change and shift during that time too. And, um, and you don't always grow and learn and change and shift on the same plane. Right. Right. But it's you, I love how you put it. You said he helped me to become a better version of myself. And that is just such an incredible and powerful statement to make. Thanks. He was, John really was the best. And, um, and we loved each other. And I think we were just on a life on fast forward. So let's talk about the next big shift and what happened to John. So we, so John comes back from the deployment on Valentine's Day again. So he had 100th night dance on Valentine's Day. He proposed to me on Valentine's Day. He returns from 14 months in Iraq on Valentine's Day. And I remember we sat on a beach after the deployment and he's like, should we stay in or should we get out? And um, all signs said, stay in. We love this community. We love serving our country and we're excited for whatever adventure awaits. And so we stayed in and we moved to Georgia, had a baby, ran a marathon, moved to Louisiana, had a baby, ran a marathon. And then we moved to Fort Lewis, Washington, and um, great command team. John was excited to work with. It was a previous leader, and John was a part of a unit, Fifth Striker Brigade, who was standing up um, just a brigade of strikers. And this was a newer technology at the time. I'm not a military expert, so I'm I won't speak at all about that because I'm going to say it all wrong. Um, but. John was excited and he was about to have company command and there's about 160 service members in an infantry company for whom you're responsible. And it's um, an opportunity where you're still very much a leader um, and, and in the fight in, in a real way, but you're um, also making leadership decisions, but real time taking part of the experience. And um, John was in company command and he took command in November of 2008 and then that January, our, we announced as a country our surge to Afghanistan. And so we found out that John's unit was going to go to Afghanistan the following summer. And so, of course, it's right around the same time John takes command, we find out that we're, we're going to have another baby. And um, we do the math, and we figure out John's going to be gone when the baby's born. So we find out that we're going to have a little girl and we have two boys. So we're very excited about this. Um, but John's eyeball deep in preparing for deployment. And so in July of 2009, John deploys with his brigade to Southern Afghanistan. And it's really the first time that American forces have been in this part of, of the country. And, um, there's a ton of unknowns and, um, this deployment's not quite as romantic as the first one. Um, I have three kids. Well, at this point, when John leaves, I have two kids and I'm nine months pregnant. And Jackson is three, Bryce is one. And um, I know how hard that time is apart. And um, and there are so many more unknowns this time. As a nation, we've been at war for eight years. And, um, and we're tired. And... Um, and so John leaves, and three weeks later, our daughter Heidi is born. And um, I remember I'm, I'm in labor delivery, and I remember John's like, are you sure? You know, I, I'm going to leave. And I, and then I say, yeah, of course, I've got this. You know, I'm, I'm an Army wife. I, I can do this. This is what we're made for. What were the options? Like, 
I mean, he would are stay there, or you would induce and have her early or what? Well, that's the thing. What really were the options? I mean, could we have figured out a way for John to have stayed till Heidi was born? Maybe, but not really. You know, John's going to a combat experience and does he really want to send his team on without him or, or vice versa? And it wasn't. Um, but I remember I'm in labor and delivery and it's like, I changed my mind. I want my husband. And, um, but we had a healthy, beautiful little girl, Heidi, Heidi Vihalet. And, um, and John, you know, you send the red cross message and let them know. And he called and they said, we have a girl. And then, um, here's how we do things in, in, the army and the military. We try to make things as complicated as possible. So wait until spouse deploys, then have baby in the middle of having baby while spouse is deployed, refinance your house. And you just add as much exciting, complicated paperwork and projects (laughs) all at once. And have two other toddlers, three under three, right? Right. Three at three. Yeah. So I remember I'm, I'm okay. It's the first few days and I'm home and, I have two kids in diapers and um, I'm trying to do bath time and the new baby is crying. I think my middle baby is crying and everybody's crying and then I'm crying. And then I think to myself, like I paused for a minute. I says, I said, okay, this is supposed to be hard. Your husband's deployed. You're right. You're supposed to have two parents. This is supposed to be hard. It's going to be okay. This is not forever. And then a couple days later, I'm in the middle of refinancing the house and John calls. And so as soon as John calls, I would start feeding Heidi because I didn't want to miss hearing John's voice. I wanted to take it all in. And I've got a lot of questions because they want you to sign about a hundred pages. I don't really know what I'm signing here. And so I'm feeding Heidi and I'm like, is it okay for me to sign this? Are you sure? And, and, And we're talking about this house refinance. And then John says to me, he says, I've never heard Heidi cry. And I said, well, oh, gosh, don't worry about that. You have a lifetime for that. And then and then the communication goes dark. So that's our last phone call. And then John pushes off to a new portion. And, and right, American forces have never been there. So we don't have communication lines established yet. And so we go into a period where I'm not hearing for John, from John for weeks. And our last call is, I've never heard Heidi cry. And so two weeks later, we received the first notification uh, of casualties in our unit. And just um, one of John's soldiers, um, Troy Tom, is killed. Um, a couple of great guys are just severely injured. And, um, and Yanni is also killed in this incident. And we realized this is, this is not the romantic first deployment that we had known and experienced. Um, this is real. And we're in a dangerous and volatile situation. And it never occurred to me that John would not de- come home from that deployment. But my worry was, how is John going to come home from this deployment? Who is going to come home from this deployment? So Tom is killed. He's one of John's soldiers. And my heart is just broken for my husband, right? How, how will, you know, obviously I see my husband as this sweet and caring man. How will he carry the loss of one of his soldiers and I'm, I'm heartbroken for him and I, I'm terrified for, 
for the what's next. And, and he's, he's a warrior. And I, he really was, a, I've, I felt like this, just this, this warrior with a compassionate heart. And he was, he was a professional. But a week after that incident, I go to my first military planning meeting of the deployment. And so it's, I'm, I'm going to be a point of contact. And I'm feeling pretty proud of myself. It's the first time I'm out of the house, really, after having the baby. I'm not wearing maternity clothes, which makes me feel like a rock star. And um, John had always wanted me to get more involved. And so I'm (laughs) feeling like military wife of the year. And um, so the boys, I'm sharing a babysitter with a fellow military spouse, a dear friend. And so she has, we're sharing a babysitter for the boys and I've got Heidi with me in her little bucket seat and I park, I park my car and I kind of sashay into this training room because again, not wearing maternity clothes and I've got Heidi in her little bucket seat and I march right up to the front of the classroom and I spread out my papers and um, as I'm getting settled in, I have a tap on my shoulder and it's Frankie and Frankie is our rear detachment commander. He's actually one of John's soldiers. And so I was pretty flipped. I was like, hey, what's going on? And Frankie was not as flip as I was. He said, Lisa, you need to come with me. You should bring your stuff. And so I remember I, slow motion, I, I gather up my papers and I pick up Heidi in her, her little bucket seat. She's three weeks old and Frankie leads me across the parade field or the, the, I believe the battalion field. And I remember, I mean, there's a million thoughts running through my mind and I keep just almost demanding, tell me John's okay. Tell me John's okay. But Frankie was impassive and he takes me to the battalion classroom and there are two gentlemen waiting for me and they're wearing green suits And the gentleman on the right is holding this white piece of paper. And I'm still not quite getting what's going on. And I'm holding Heidi in her little bucket seat. And the gentleman on the right reads the paper. Secretary of Defense regrets to inform you that your husband, Captain John L. Hallett, is believed to have perished in the fires and I stopped listening and they said believed at a three-year-old, a one-year-old and this baby who my husband had never met and they had to be wrong. Later that day, General Mathis called and he said, you know, Lisa, I've, I've heard the news. What can I do for you? And I said, they said, believed. And he said, I am so sorry. And um, John had been killed with three other soldiers on his way home from a Goodwill mission. They had just delivered medicine to a village with a cholera outbreak. And um, John wouldn't come home from that deployment. And there wouldn't be a point where he would hear Heidi cry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I just had to stop and grab some Kleenex. Definitely, uh, very. You know, it's it's interesting when you listen, 
When you hear something like what you've been through, you think, I wonder how it happened, how she heard, how she found out. And as much as it's really hard to hear that story, like it, it helps me be able to like have the emotions and get through them again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I appreciate like you sharing all of that. Um, because everybody listening has lost someone in their lives. Maybe not in as like grand fashion. <laughs> and I and I feel like bad laughing right now too, because it's not funny, you know, it's just we also have to cope and get through with our real lives when stuff happens that's beyond our control, right? Well, and it's it's life. I mean that is. We all know loss. It's life. And we all know hard, right? That's the unifier. There's not one of us that's going to skip through life without enduring some sort of heartbreak and some sort of challenge. And it is going to feel like it did for me when John died because it is our own. Right. And, and that it's the feel is the same, right? Loss is loss. And when we love and care about somebody and they're not there anymore, no matter how, dramatic it unfolds um the hurt and the absence and the sadness that that walk Mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. that passing is real and the same for all of us yep Yep. absolutely so so how did how did you start walking forward again you know i know when trauma happens to people sometimes you don't really remember the immediate aftermath. I mean, do you remember what you did after you heard those words or is the world just kind of fuzzy for a while? Yes, yes. And yes. Um, (laughs) does that help? I remember. So we had a daddy, we had a daddy wall when John left. I had three very young children and I needed them to know and see and love and recognize their daddy. So we covered the, the door to our garage with pictures of John and so in that moment when when I was notified that John was killed, I, I drove home and I sat in front of this wall and looked at pictures of John. And um, it was so abstract because my, my husband was, was a world away and he was supposed to be a world away for a year anyway. And John was killed at the beginning of six, week, uh, six weeks into that deployment. I was ready for another year of being on my own. And, and so it was very abstract. And so that's my first moment. And then a few days later, I remember going for a run with my friend Carrie. And this is in this in-between period, John's body is still being transported back from Afghanistan. So I haven't flown home for the, the funeral service, but I know that my husband's not coming home in the traditional sense. And so my friend Carrie and I go for a run. Her husband, Steve, watches all the kids. And I remember the sun is shining and I live in Washington, right? So sunshiny days are few and far between. And I remember being so pissed that it was this beautiful, sunny day. I just wanted to shake my hand at the world and say, how dare you? Just how dare you? My husband is dead. There is nothing sunshiny and beautiful about this day. And, um, but we went for a run and, um, it was ugly, right? I just had a baby. I I was, you know, squoze into workout clothes that definitely didn't fit. Did you say squoze? Because I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) I will say I remember those first 
runs or even walks after um, baby and you feel like your body's not your body and you're it's something weird going on with your butt where it's like <laughs> not attached to you because it's bouncing around a lot more so, than normal do you wobbly. do you do you relate to this uh, very wobbly and wibbly as movement and um, those are technical <laughs> running terms we use in the <laughs> yes. professional world but yeah, I was, it was, it was a mess, but I ran and, um, it was the first time that I had escaped the fog a little bit, if you will, and felt, and then, and then you start navigating, right? Cause Jackson's in preschool and they still need to be fed and the world continues. And so my next distinct moment is I'm driving Jackson to preschool and we're passing through this wildlife refuge and a U2 song comes on. And so I'm crying, right? They're very dramatic songs and they make you cry, but I'm crying, right? I'm, it's all raw and vulnerable. And my three-year-old in the back seat says, mommy, stop crying. You're scaring me. And I think to myself, oh shit. Like it was just this very, it was, it was a guestus, right? This, this aha in that my children have already lost their father to war. It's not fair for them to lose their mother to grief. And um, it was a turning point and that we've always been open about grief and our loss and our feelings because it's important and necessary for my children to know that John was a man worth grieving and worth remembering. And, and it is okay to feel sad, um, but I wanted them to have a child that was marked by joy, um, not by sorrow. And so those were these, these, these moments of trying to take in the abstract loss, learning to connect with my feelings and understanding that there needed to be and that I wanted there to be more than this loss that defined our lives. Wow. And how interesting that, you know, Jackson made that comment too. And that he equated it with, you're scaring me. Hmm. Yeah. I, so, yeah. but it was just. Are you there? It was just, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It was just, yeah. I'm just thinking, it was just, you know, it was real. And, but it, it definitely shifted how how I moved forward and, and what I wanted out of moving forward. And I think it's been a piece of, I hope been a piece of how we've created wear blue and that these men and women who have died for our country deserve more than stasis at a memorial. Um, before they died, they lived. Right. Yes. And so we should live our own lives in celebration and by the inspiration of how they live their lives. So let's talk a little bit about support because I think this will lead into as well, you know, lead into wear blue, but you were not alone during this grieving process. Um, I think, you know, many men lost their lives in the same battles, correct? Correct. So there were other people you know, near you who were probably grieving as well. Like, how did you support them? How did they support you? Was support important? Military family, military is support, right? And so I remember 
Aaron O'Connor is the co-founder of Wear Blue Remember, Run to Remember. And so I remember before John died, you know, I had a baby while my husband was deployed. And I remember Aaron comes into my house with her own two young children in their car seats in her car. And she has these two, I mean, party platters, pasta dishes for me. And she says, I'm here for you. Whatever you need, you know, I've got this. Uh, you know, I'm here to support you. And she brings, you know, we feed each other. But it's not a dish that she was offering me. She was offering me her friendship, her support, and her understanding, right? This is this is not an easy road, and it's not a road for everybody. And I'm here with it. And um, you know, three weeks later when my husband is killed, Aaron is again at my footsteps, at my doorsteps, um, offering more food. But she's she said, I've got you. We're going to run through this. Um and so was she one of the women that you would go on runs with? Yes. Erin and I, we ran together. So we lost 41 soldiers that year. And um, each week we were receiving these heartbreaking notifications, the loss of life, limb and mind. And so as a community, it was just overwhelming um, to process this and to understand who is next. How will my spouse come home from this deployment? And these were our friends, too, not just men and women with whom our spouses served, but they were our peers. We had barbecues and promotions and celebrations together. And so it was a loss that we felt holistically as a community. And so Aaron and I would run together. We, we were both runners by trade, and we found a lot of strength in it and healing. And we recognized how powerful that could be for the larger community. And so Aaron really ideated that we need to get the whole of us involved. And so we said, all right, let, we, we've, we've got to organize. And so we, we decide in, in February of that year, we're going to have our first official run. And we don't really know what this looks like, but we know that we need to gather. We know that we need support. So we meet in the Burger King parking lot and next to the airfield on the installation. And we wear our spouse's physical training shirt. And they are these super classy, design shirts it's got a big buffalo on it and i think it says 800 tons of pure whoop ass they're they're terrible none of us are consulted in the design of these shirts but we wear them and the first run we kind of awkwardly look at each other and then we run around the airfield and but each week we evolve and we begin to speak the names of the men who've been killed in this deployment and we circle and we bow our heads and we give voice to their stories and then we run and then we place flags on the route. And then we realize we don't have to meet in the Burger King parking lot in order to run. So then we find a new location. And then eventually we realize we need a goal. So we run the Seattle Rock and Roll Marathon. But we place 40 flags on the course because at that point we had lost 40 service members um, in honor of each of these guys. And then just weeks later, the unit comes home from the deployment. And we realize that they need the same things that we need, right? And, and really, we, words were not big enough to express everything we felt and wanted to say. But with running, you don't need to have right words. And that we were able to physically and emotionally move forward, reconnect through the steps of a run. So is this the beginning of Wear Blue Run to Remember? Absolutely. This is where Wear Blue started. 
And so we didn't. When did it become like a thing that you named? It's just, it's so amazing. I truly believe that almost every great movement in this world starts organically and it's almost by accident. And then all of a sudden one day it's something that's big that affects people in a positive way and that makes change. And I feel like that's what I'm hearing is this organic genesis of a thing. <laughs> oh, I love that. No, you're right though, right? We're, and we weren't deigning to, to create a national nonprofit we're responding to a real life need. And, and just through this process, we realized that we were bigger than the moment. And I remember the guys came home from that deployment, the guys and the gals. And I remember Erin and I went for a run and she said, what's next? And I said, I need wear blue. Well, at this point we were run to remember us. I said, I need, I need this community. And we kept growing it. We kept spearheading these runs and that unit started to join our steps. They reintegrated with their families. They were able to give voice to their experiences and their friends with whom they had served in that deployment. And they were, of course, able to find a healthy, healthy outlet and coping mechanism through the steps of a run. Wow. So today, Wear Blue is, it's a real thing. It's an organization. There's events all over the place. Give us, for people who are listening and like, I have to be a part of that. I have to support. How can people be involved? How does it work? So Wear Blue is really about building community that honors the service and sacrifice in the American military. And in these these communities, we're continuing the heart of our first steps, right? We're empowering our families of the fallen. We're supporting our military and their families. And we're honoring and remembering the service members who've made the ultimate sacrifice. And we do that one, the simplest way is to go online and purchase a wear blue shirt and take purposeful steps. And so anytime somebody puts on a wear blue shirt or, or even just take steps in honor and support of our military, right? You're joining the movement. But to that effect, we now have Saturday run communities, just like that first one we had in the Burger King parking lot around the world who gather, speak the names of service members who've made the ultimate sacrifice on that weekend since the global war and terror began on September 11th. And then we take life-affirming steps forward, right? How do we create communities that connect and support one another, but live inspired by the courage and sacrifice of American service members? And then out of this, this, Saturday run community, which is really the crux of who we are and what we do. We've got some really great programs that are igniting change um, for our military, their families and our families of the fallen. And we have our Gold Star Youth Mentorship Program. And we take children who have lost a parent in military service and we pair them with a currently serving member of our armed forces and we train them to run their first 5K. So right now in communities in North Carolina, Washington and Texas, every week these kids, they connect with their mentors and um, they learn about a life of service. And then they belong to a larger community who shows their support and solidarity and their journeys. And then they develop a healthy coping mechanism for how they can move forward throughout the challenges of navigating a life without their parents. And it has been amazing to see just a small portion of our 10,000 Gold Star children um, find a place and identity in the Wear Blue community. 
Wow. So you mentioned Gold Star. Um, you know, you weren't an enlisted serviceman, you know, so what happens when your husband dies? Are you still considered military? You know, how does that work? How do you stay in the military yet? Maybe go back to civilian life? Oh, my gosh, it's something that I've grappled with a lot. And after John died, I personally felt like a one person diaspora, and that I was an, an exodus of a people and that I wasn't military anymore, but I wasn't civilian anymore. And that the I wasn't moving anymore. There were no more promotions. There was, we weren't in that traditional military lifestyle, but it wasn't quite civilian. And it, the military is my family. It's my blood. It's, it's how we live and what I know. And so Wear Blue has been a powerful tool for me to be able to successfully straddle those communities. Mm-hmm. And that each week we join our local community Saturday run. Um, and I find a place as both military spouse, survivor, and civilian. And I'm able to speak John's name, stand side by side with the men and women and their families who are still serving, and really find a sense of home in this community. And I, I think that that's been true for a lot of our our Gold Star families, families who have lost a loved one in military service, our veterans, and of course our military to find their own own sense of support and network um, in the broader communities. Well, this is a, actually a really good way to segue a little bit into talking about you, because you know when you lost John, you your whole life was wrapped up in like getting through this grief and caring for your children, managing the moment, you know, doing what you could to survive. But at some point, I could imagine that it, I might feel some guilt focusing on myself again. And, you know, I wanted to maybe talk through like where you are today. Like we all, those of us listening here, you're going to be looking at this uh, YouTube clip from 2014 Ironman Hawaii, which you did. And, um, you know, to get there, you had to turn it back to yourself and focus on you and create new goals and be okay with that. You know, how, tell me a little bit more about that process. Does any of this resonate with you? Did you go through that like guilt process of I, I matter still, <laughs> you know, well, who am I kind of uh, thing? You know, when John first died, uh, my vocabulary was so limited that all I could think and feel and say, I felt like was my husband died. My husband died. Hi, I'm John's widow. My husband died. Right. And my identity was so wrapped up into my husband who wasn't coming home, right? But in doing that, I re-victimized myself or I made myself a victim. And I slowly realized that that's that's not who I wanted to be. And, And within that strain, there were people very, very kindly said, how did you survive? You know, your husband died, you have three children, three and under. And then they kind of self answered themselves. So I guess you just did what you had to do. You just had to survive. So it it happened. And, and I think that's wrong. You can't, I didn't have to survive because I had to, you have to survive and thrive because you want to. And, um, sport running and, and finding myself through all this journey has been such, uh, a gift 
of re-experiencing the world with new eyes and that understanding, yes, my husband will always have died and, and he will always be a part of me. But um, I hope that it, it has transitioned to a point that it's a part of me in a way that inspires me and allows me to appreciate the world in a new and vibrant, vibrant way. And I think a part of that is understanding that, yes, there's Lisa Hallett, the widow, but there's also Lisa Hallett, woman who is athlete, professional, mother, friend, and so much more and constantly still creating beyond that. And I think there's this struggle as a, and as an endurance athlete, especially because it is so time consuming that there is always a little bit of guilt. Oh, I could be working. I could be spending time with my kids. But I think I've gotten to a place of understanding that in order for me to be the best version of myself as a mother, the best version as a leader, as a professional, um, I need to be the best version of myself as an athlete. And um, Dina Castor talks about it in her book, but how I experience success um, as an athlete helps me in elevate myself emotionally and physically. And so I think any success I've had um, on a course, whether it's a triathlon or a marathon or an ultra, um, really has empowered my abilities in the remaining arenas of my life. That's very well said. Cross the board. You are full of nuggets today. I love it. <laughs> nuggets and dings. Nuggets and dings. Absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you moved on from Burger King parking lots to potentially healthier, fast casual chain parking lots. <laughs> We're working toward Panera next month. <laughs> um, you know, we've been going for so long and I, I would just love to talk for another hour. Maybe someday we'll do a marathon session here. We need to give a little quick call out to our friend Liz Delise who put us together. Yes, Liz has been an amazing leader spearheading our community with Jackie Demchok at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And so they meet every Saturday morning um, at Clark Park in Fayetteville, North Carolina, really supporting our Fort Bragg community. And they start each run with a circle of remembrance, and then they take joyful, life-affirming steps forward um, while also supporting our Gold Star Youth Mentorship Program. And Liz Delise and Jackie, as well as communities across the country, are leading Memorial Day runs for Wear Blue Run Tree member. And so I'd love to invite your community to join Wear Blue on Memorial Day, whether out their front door or in a community like Liz and Jackie's or here at JBLM, and take purposeful steps in honor of our nation's fallen service members. And so if runners and athletes and walkers of all kinds just head to our website and commit to run a meaningful number of miles, where Blue Run Tree member will provide the name and story of a fallen service member to learn, honor, and live inspired by this Memorial Day. On that note, if you're already running like a Memorial Day race, can you kind of combine the two? Heck yeah. Um, your steps can be anywhere and the distance can be anything. But let us know what you're running on Memorial Day and, and why that distance means something to you. And I would challenge participants, of course, um, to take their performance to the next level and really let their steps um, breathe with the life of the men and women who didn't get to come home from that deployment. Well, I love this because we, we need to get all the 30, 40,000 people doing the Boulder Boulder 10K, which is a big race in our neck of the woods, to uh, add an element here and make it more purposeful, like you said. So 
Wear blue, run to remember, everybody. Let's do this thing. I will have a link in the show notes to the website and how they can get involved and and also a link to that YouTube video so they can learn a little more about you and see you in action at Ironman. How cool is that? I was pretty lucky to get to participate with some stellar athletes who really are showing the rest of us what it means to put it on the line to achieve great things. Well, before we go today, I'm going to ask you the final question I ask every every guest who comes on the show, which is if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one awesome little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Wow, that's no joke, big question. Oh, yeah. Final nugget, I, baby. Bring it. I love it. Um, I guess just that that reminder is, don't survive because you have to survive because you want to. And my last conversation with my husband, John said, I never got to hear Heidi's cry. And, um, every day we have the opportunity to feast in a world of just amazing, overwhelming, beautiful blessings. And just to celebrate those moments and choose to take your life to what's next, because not everybody gets to come home and take that next moment. Very beautifully said. Thank you so much, Lisa. I cannot wait to share you with my Run This World community. Uh, This is awesome. I am so grateful to have gotten to spend this morning with you. All right, guys, I'm back. So how you feeling after this one? Um, There were some tough moments emotionally for sure. Lisa is all of these things powerful, captivating, inspiring, human. It's the last part that I think makes us feel so connected to her and her journey. At least that's how I feel. This is a long episode, I know. So I'm going to wrap it up pretty quickly here. But before I do, I want to encourage you to check out Wear Blue, Run to Remember. Even if you don't have a direct connection to the military, I'm sure you can appreciate the work Lisa is doing to help others. Um, Because as Lisa says, even when times are so tough that it's hard to simply function, you will survive not because you have to, but because you want to. And that is what she is helping people do. So remember that. Um, If you're actually going for a run or doing a race on Memorial Day, go to where blue run to remember.org um, join their facebook community uh, they've got a great facebook group or go out and find a local group and link up with them and give your run a greater purpose i mean if nothing else wear blue that day just do it do it for that purpose oh by the way skirt sports has a lot of really cool blue stuff on sale right now skirtsports.com um so that's it for me today all right You guys, this is a big one, so I'm going to let you go and absorb it. All right, then. On that note, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I will see you next week.